This week marks the 60th anniversary of the flight of Enos, the chimpanzee who became the third hominid to orbit the Earth and remains the only chimpanzee to do so. And so to look at this in more detail and to find out more about how animals were used in the early space race, we've asked our friend and author Stephen Walker to join us once again. As always, please do get involved with us on our social networks. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we love hearing from you. And why not treat yourself to one of our t-shirts? Christmas is coming up after all. And they're available on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. But right now, please enjoy episode 65 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. Hello, I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 65 of our podcast. We're going to get straight on this week because we've got a great interview coming up. Uh, Animals in space. This can get quite emotive for some people, but it happened. And in my opinion, it's worth talking about and trying to learn from. On November 29th, 1961, Enos, the chimp, was launched into orbit within a Mercury capsule on top of an Atlas rocket as part of a full-dress rehearsal for John Glenn's Mercury launch, which would take place on February 20th, 1962. I'm sure the astronauts loved that they used the chimpanzee for a dress rehearsal. Now, Enos completed two of the three scheduled orbits, and the flight was cut short due to a couple of technical problems. Uh, In my opinion... It's a shame that we don't know more about Enos, uh, and he's definitely not as well known as Ham, the chimpanzee who flew a suborbital flight in January of 1961, earlier that year, thus becoming the first great ape to be launched into space. So with that in mind, we thought we'd try and educate ourselves about Enos and about other animals that have been launched into space. And to help us out, we're being joined once again by Stephen Walker, who released a new book earlier this year called Beyond, which focused primarily on the life of Yuri Gagarin, but his research covered the whole of that early space program, and the book opens with accounts of some of the dogs who were flown into space by Russia. Stephen previously joined us on episode 49 to talk about Gearman Titov, and on episode 32 about that first human spaceflight made by Yuri Gagarin. Both are wonderful interviews, and Stephen is one of our favorite storytellers. So, without any further ado, let's get to this interview. Yeah, but... Just a little warning, at some points it does get a little bit graphic about what happened to the animals. So if you're a bit squeamish, be careful. And this happens around the 20 minute mark. So uh, there's a warning for you. Uh, Roger, this is Liberty Bell 7. The clock is operating. Loud and Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us once again. How are you doing? I'm good, actually. Yeah, good, good, good. Excellent. I mean, you know, thinking about Christmas now and uh, thinking about Christmas presents, books <laughs> yeah. you might want to buy for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Base books are always a winner. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you back. We've had such wonderful feedback from your previous appearances, so it's great to have you back with us. So this time, we're talking about the flight of Enos and the use of animals in those early years of spaceflight. So to start with, tell us all about this flight. This is an incredible moment. It happens on November the 29th, 1961. And a chimpanzee called Enos 
uh, translated actually in Hebrew or in Greek as man, ironically, <laughs> um, is placed in a capsule, a Mercury space capsule on the top of an Atlas rocket in Cape Canaveral and blasted into space. And unlike his predecessor, another chimpanzee called Ham, this flight is not a ballistic flight, an up and down kind of flight. This flight is a fully orbital flight. It is the first chimpanzee or higher primate to orbit the Earth. And it's really important because what was happening in the Mercury program at this point was that they were gearing up for the first American orbital flight. Mm. That flight was going to go to John Glenn. That flight would take place in February 1962. This is the dress rehearsal. And the primate they choose is called Enos. He's about five years old. He is notoriously difficult to handle. <laughs> Unlike his predecessor, Ham, who flew in the up and down flight in January 1961, he was apparently very kind of docile. This one is really difficult. He has constantly high blood pressure, apparently. I mean, Tom Wolfe famously in The Right Stuff, in his famous book, which was turned into a movie, The Right Stuff, says he kind of swallowed all his rage and it came out in his blood pressure, which is always very high. He would notoriously bite his handlers. Every photograph pretty much you see of Enos, he has restraining straps on his hands because he was terrified that he would reach out and try and grab his handler or try and bite his handler. And the handlers always look quite wary and quite scared of him. But the thing about Enos was that he was probably the cleverest of the colony of chimpanzees that were being kept at the Holloman Aeromedical facility in New Mexico and for the purposes of space flights. I mean, this was a brilliant chimpanzee. I'll give you an example. One of the tests that they had to do, and one of the things he had to do in this flight was he had to push a lever on a little machine called a psychomotor in front of him. And he had to push it exactly 50 times in order to get a banana pellet that would come out in a little tray. And it had to be exactly 50 times. And this chimpanzee, Enos, never got it wrong. <laughs> in fact, he was so good at it that when he got to the 49th push on the lever, when he was doing it in training, he would then hold his hand out, waiting for the banana pellet that was going to come in on the 50th. That's Amazing. how clever he was. But on this flight, things went wrong. And one particular thing went wrong with this psychomotor, because an unpleasant aspect, a deeply unpleasant aspect of the psychomotor was that one of the programs on it was called an oddity program. And essentially what that meant was, was that there were three shapes that would appear on a panel in front of the chimpanzee. And two of the shapes would be the same, and one would be different. Two triangles, one square. Two squares, one circle. And the chimpanzee would have to pull the lever underneath the odd one out. And again, Enos was brilliant at this. The penalties for not getting it right was to get an electric shock on the soles of the chimpanzee's feet. And these shocks would last for, half, last for approximately half a second. And if no lever was pressed at all, for 35 seconds, then the chimpanzee would get an electric shock every five seconds until he pressed any lever at all. 
Now imagine this is happening in a space flight with all the other stuff that's going on at the same time during a rocket launch in orbit. And Enos, brilliant that he is, is pushing the levers exactly right. And then there is an upset with the mechanism. And every time that he pushes the correct lever, he gets an electric shock. Every time, 35 electric shocks he gets in the course of his flight around the world. I mean, it's appalling. And there's some real sense when you read, as I have, the original literature that was produced, I mean, official literature that was produced in 1963, two years after this flight, by NASA. They are saying in the small print that Enos is trying to game the system. He's actually aware that something is wrong somewhere, and he's consciously trying to find a way to not get an electric shock by consciously pulling levers that he knows would be the wrong lever, but might prevent him from getting electric shocks. I mean, this is the level of intelligence that we're dealing with in this animal. And it is extraordinary. The rocket goes up, he's in orbit. The plan was to have three orbits, but things start going wrong. The capsule starts to overheat. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter. It does eventually stabilize, but now we've got a chimpanzee with a faulty psychomotor getting 35 electric shocks and the temperature is plus 40 degrees in his cabin, mm. okay? And there he is still going around the world. And then there's a problem, although of course he doesn't know this, with the attitude thrusters. Now, these are the thrusters that are there to make sure that the spaceship, the Mercury spacecraft, orients itself correctly for a safe re-entry back into the Earth's atmosphere. If you get it wrong, you can skip back into space, never to come back again, um, or you can go too steeply and you can plunge too fast into the atmosphere and burn up despite the presence of the heat shield. So it's essential to get this right. There was a faulty valve, there was fuel that was leaking, and a really last minute decision is taken by mission control, which at that time was not in Houston, hadn't been built then, but in the Cape itself. And a crucial decision is taken by the flight director, Chris Craft, which is, should we go for a third orbit or not? And in the last 12 seconds, the decision is made not to go for the third orbit. But there is a wonderful little story that I picked up, which I just love, which is that apparently the tracking station that would be responsible automatically for bringing the capsule down after two orbits, which was based in California, had a landline, a cable line that went all the way from the California tracking station to the Cape, to Mercury Control Center in the Cape. And an Arizona tractor driver happened to be plowing a field and drove over the cable and cut it in that 12 seconds. <laughs> so the line was cut. Oh my God. There's a chimpanzee up there that's about to face another orbit and potentially a horribly fiery death or being stranded in space because of an Arizona tractor driver happening to cut the cable wow. in the middle of his field. And literally only in the very last second or two do they establish another circuit with the tracking station in California and sent the signal out at the last moment, and the capsule came down. He landed in the sea, I think somewhere near Hawaii, and he was so enraged that he ripped off 
his restraint suit in the capsule while waiting for about an hour and a half for the rescue ships to arrive. He then ripped all the electrodes off him. And then, get this, he ripped out the balloon-inflated catheter from his penis with the balloon still inflated. He ripped it out in the capsule as it's bobbing on the water. Oh, my God. That is the level of rage that we are dealing with. And it is understandable that this this Mm. rage was there. I mean, these chimpanzees were essentially kept in pretty appalling conditions. They were kidnapped by trappers, animal trappers, mostly from the French Cameroons in Africa. They were then purchased by NASA, usually for between four or five hundred dollars. They ended up in this place, the Viverum, it was called, in the Holloman Era Medical Center. Um, there were about 40 of them. They had names like Elvis and Dwayne and Minnie and Little Joe and Ham, of course, and, and who's actually called Chang originally, and of course, Enos as well. They were, from the very beginning, made to sit in metal chairs, which were separated from each other by five feet, so they were not encouraged to play with each other from the mm. beginning. These are basically baby chimpanzees, many of them. I mean, Ham was about one and a half years old when he was captured. He was kidnapped from his mother, basically. This was the first chimpanzee to go into space of the two. So they were separated from each other and they were made to sit in these chairs for longer and longer and longer periods. There was a guy that, um, what they call an aeromedical technician called Ed Dittmer, Edward Dittmer, who died about two or three years ago. I was hoping to interview him for my book, but he died just about the time that I was starting my research. And he was was one of the key handlers. He was responsible. And what's incredible about these handlers and the people that actually looked after and trained these chimpanzees is how they convinced themselves that they were doing something not just good for science, but something that chimpanzees might actually enjoy. Mm. I mean, I have a little quotation here from a Navy captain called Ashton Graybeal, interesting name, who actually says in the late 1950s, he says in 1959, he says, these monkeys, he was talking about monkeys because the monkey program as well as a chimpanzee program, which we can talk about, these monkeys are almost volunteers. During the pre-flight testing, we didn't force a monkey to take a test if it objected to it. Wow, no way. Almost volunteers, kidnapped, placed in this place, not allowed to play with each other, put in centrifuges, put on vibrating tables, put in pressure chambers, given electric shocks on the soles of their feet if they got anything wrong, which they often did as they were starting to train on the psychomotor, and then put through the horrors of a space flight with all that that entails. Doesn't sound like volunteers to me. Absolutely not. No. I have to say one thing about Enos, though. When a visiting senator turned up to see all the chimpanzees at the Holloman Era Medical Center, or it might have actually been at the Cape in Hangar S, where they were kept just before their flights, and he famously shot in front of the visiting senator, <laughs> then picked up his feces and flung them in the senator's face. This is a, a verified story. That's Enos. Great job, Enos. I mean, that's terrible. He should have never have done that. That's, that's awful. <laughs> Actually, there was one monkey 
who managed to get past his guards and ended up in Tampa City, apparently in a kitchen, in somebody's kitchen, flinging teacups all over the place until he was finally picked up by the police. And he ended up in a in a Tampa City police station. Oh, my God. I, I got to look that up. I'm sure it got in the papers. It's true. I mean, it's, everything I, I, I say it. is true, Emily. <laughs> no, I believe it. I'm just saying I'm, I need to go look at like local papers and be like, oh, my God, yeah. this is the because we actually had I'm getting way off topic. I'll get back on topic in a second. We had a monkey scandal around here a few years ago. Don't ask. Yeah. We had we had he was called the St. Petersburg mystery monkey. You may have heard of. <laughs> I him. think I have. We've had monkey problems. <laughs> Well, I mean, these monkeys, I mean, there were a lot of monkeys, not just chimpanzees, there were monkeys as well. And in fact, the Americans started with monkeys. I mean, the whole thing began in 1940, well, really in 1948. It began with something called Project Albert. And Project Albert grew out of another project called Project Blossom. This was when the German V-2 missile that had been raining down on London and Antwerp and causing such destruction, Werner von Braun's V-2 missile, was being reconstructed in New Mexico by the same team who now had been taken over under this operation called Paperclip, where all their SS pasts and their Nazi pasts were kind of conveniently erased, and now they were building these V-2 missiles. And what Blossom was, was an attempt to work out how to eject nose cones from these V-2 missiles, because the missiles, if they fell to earth, they would tumble, they were completely unaerodynamic. So it was about ejecting the nose cone with whatever package was inside it. And somebody came up with the idea, why don't we put an animal inside it? Actually, the first animal that went up was a fruit fly, was a number <laughs> oh, okay. of fruit flies, which actually <laughs> landed intact. But in 1948, the Americans were the first to do this thinking ahead to the possibility of human flight, they put squirrel monkeys or little monkeys, rhesus monkeys they were, into these nose cones. And they called it Project Albert. And every single one of these monkeys was called Albert. Albert <laughs> one, Albert two, Albert three, up to Albert six. And all six of them were killed. <sighs> all of them. And in that same kind of, you know, dark sort of comedy in a way that I find very ugly and unattractive. Somebody had actually scrawled on the nose cone before obviously the rocket went with the first Albert had written, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, <laughs> knowing essentially that this animal would die. In that mm. particular case, there was a problem with the parachute system and Albert and his nose cone smashed at terrific speed into the desert and he just was totally destroyed. It was an enormous mm. crater as a result. So the Americans started it. And the reason they were doing this was because thinking ahead to high speed flight, to space flight, to rocket flight of one sort or another, which was there on the horizon, even in the late 1940s, no one had a clue what would happen to a human being in space. This mm. was the great new frontier. Yeah. Nobody knew. Would he go blind? Would his heart stop beating? Would he be able to swallow? Would, I mean, there's a hundred thousand things that they were worried about. Would he 
actually, and it's always a he, isn't it? Would he actually survive the terrific acceleration forces of a rocket launch? What would happen in weightlessness? You know, what was it like to experience a weightless condition? Would his brain be damaged? Would he get ulcers? What would radiation in space do? They had no idea. So these animals, these monkeys to begin with, beginning with Project Albert in 1948, this was going to pave the way for human flight. Sending these animals, which had obvious physical similarities to humans, into the great unknown. That's how it started in America. Wow. I really did not know that. And I'm ashamed to admit that I should know that, but I don't. So I have a couple questions. Um, I can't imagine the general public, if, if they had known, uh, would have been happy about launching animals into space. I know nowadays it would be a it would obviously be a huge issue. Um, at the time, was there much pushback about this mission or any other missions involving animals? And do you think the benefits of launching or did the benefits of launching chimpanzees, did it outweigh the downsides at the time? It's an incredibly difficult question, isn't it? I mean, the reality yeah. is that Alan Shepard, who was the first American astronaut, famously said, don't send Ham the chimpanzee. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to be the first human in space and to, if necessary, die for my country. I'm a soldier, essentially. It's what he was. He's a Navy soldier. I'm willing to go and do that. Equally, there were quite strong moves by John Glenn and other people in NASA not to send Enos, but to send Glenn instead. Remember that by the time Enos went to space in November 1961, the Soviets had already put two men in orbit. Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, went up in 1961 in April. And in August 1961, his number two, as we know, German Titov, was the next one to go up in space. And we know all about that, don't we? So the fact of the matter is, is that the Soviets were kind of way ahead. And there are the Americans sending a chimpanzee. So I don't think that necessarily there was a benefit in doing that. If you go back earlier, you could argue there was, but there is a tremendous cost here as well. I mean, there's a tremendous cost. There were many animals that died supposedly in the cause of science. And this is not like, even if one can defend this, like cancer treatments. This is, no one's going to die as a result of this. This is all about the Cold War. This is all about getting ahead of the Soviets. But the reality is within the organizations, within the Air Force, and then later on within NASA, there really is this sort of, there's a kind of a blindness. One almost could call it a moral blindness. And I may be attacked by certain people for saying this, but there sort of is that. I mean, they used, they had these horrific acceleration tests on the ground involving chimpanzees. I mean, nearly a hundred chimpanzees were killed this oh, way. Wow. They had horrible rides, like some kind of a madman's version of a roller coaster with all kinds of crazy names like the sonic wind or the bopper or the snort. Um, you know, there was a thing called Project Whoosh, where 88 chimpanzees were killed riding these sleds at terrific speeds and then suddenly stopping where their heads would smash and they would brains would be turned into mush simply to see what would happen for not just astronauts, but also pilots ejecting at very, very high speeds. 
They even used pigs. I talk about this in my book, Beyond. And they had a project called Project Barbecue, where they put pigs on these sleds and did the same thing. And sometimes even hung signs around their neck saying Project Barbecue. And they would then eat the pigs. This is verified. Eat the pigs on occasion after whatever had happened to them had happened and these pigs had died. I mean, in some cases, the pigs were anesthetized beforehand. That was also the case with some of the monkeys on Project Albert. But this is really horrific stuff. This is kind of a madman's world that we're actually talking about. And it's impossible, maybe from this perspective of the 21st century, not to feel huge compassion and some anger that these animals were put, almost volunteers, were put Mm. through this horrific regime, if you like, and very often died as a result. But no, the real beginnings of anger and of protest came with the Soviets. It came not from within the Soviet Union, but from outside the Soviet Union. And it happened when the first animal to orbit in space took place in 1957. And that animal is the one we probably all have heard of, and it is the dog Laika. Laika went into space in November 1957, just shortly after the Soviets had put, a month in fact, after the Soviets had put the first satellite, Sputnik 1, into space, which completely freaked out the United States. Because suddenly the Soviets had these, you know, essentially unhinderable satellites flying freely over great swathes of the United States, and there was nothing you could do about it at all. And what would come afterwards would be spy satellites, satellites armed with nuclear weapons, goodness knows what. Missiles. Within a month, there was Sputnik 2. Sputnik 2 was much more ambitious than Sputnik 1. Remember, the Americans hadn't sent a single satellite up at mm. this point. So Sputnik 2 contains the dog, and the dog is called Laika. And she is like all of the Soviet dogs. And there were many Soviet dogs before this were not actually talked about or publicized. She is a mongrel. The reason why she's female and chosen was because they had a urination system and a defecation system that required a female and not a male dog. It's much more complicated. She was very docile. She was a much loved dog. I've actually interviewed, she's now dead, her handler. Wow. From the Soviet world. It's incredible. I actually interviewed this terrifying woman called Dr. Adelia Kotovskaya, who is like, so Soviet, she absolutely terrified me. <laughs> and um, she was an amazing character, it took ages to get her to agree, but she was one of the principal people involved in the whole Soviet dog program. There was a top secret program that took place in the Institute of Aviation and Space Medicine in a secret location, like everything was secret, in Moscow. And Laika was the dog that was chosen to do something that no animal had done before which was not just to go to space, but to go into orbit. The problem was they did not have the technology to bring her back. So she was on a one-way trip, a one-way ticket. She was going to die in space. She was given enough food and enough oxygen inside her sealed capsule to live for seven days. And she was fired into space. And Very soon after it was announced by Moscow Radio, 
The launch itself was secret, as all Soviet launches were at that time. But very soon after it was announced on Moscow radio that she was in orbit, that the Soviets had succeeded in putting a dog in orbit, and her name was Laika, which means Barker, by the way, the whole world reacted in remarkably different ways. Some said this is an incredible achievement, and it was technologically an unbelievable achievement. It really was. I mean, as I say, remember, the, the Americans hadn't got anything in space at that point, nothing at all. Others felt angry that a dog, I mean, a dog, a dog has that connection, doesn't it? Mm. And there were protests all over, not inside the USSR, but there were protests all across the West, but particularly in the United States and also in the UK. There was a national dog lover society that protested, I mean, massively. They called for a minute's silence for Laika, who was still up there in space. There were protests outside the Soviet embassy in Washington, DC. I mean, they were re- it, would, it became a really big thing. I mean, dog lovers all over the Western world, effectively, started to protest. That's when it really began to pick up. Laika never got through her seven days. What actually happened was she died within the first few hours, probably from a thermal heating problem. The capsule, a bit like we were talking about with Enos, seriously began to overheat and she died. She died probably within five to seven hours. The Soviets went on claiming that she'd flown all of these orbits and they went on claiming this well after the Soviet Union no longer existed. It was only really as late as 2002 that the full story of what happened to Laika actually came out, that she died mercifully early on. Mm. But there was television camera inside the capsule and she was clearly barking and clearly greatly distressed as the temperature began climbing inside that capsule as it was going around the world. And I have a figure here, which was actually quite extraordinary somewhere, which is that Laika, I think she went round the world something like two and a half thousand times dead until finally, through the natural force of gravity, she re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and her capsule with her inside it disintegrated five months later in April 1958. So there was a dead dog going round and round and round the world for five months. And it really is heartrending, actually. And yet it started a feeling that these flights were amazing, but also amazingly awful in some ways. So it was wonderful propaganda for the Soviet Union, but it also wasn't at the same time. Yeah, so obviously that still... A few years on, there's still the US is still launching chimps. I'm guessing that the public didn't have the same emotional connection to chimps as dogs, right? That's which is crazy, but I'm guessing that was a thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, for the in the 1960s, the level of protest was not huge, it really wasn't that big. Right. It becomes bigger when we start getting later into the 1980s. And in fact, it really becomes bigger at that point, but they're not using chimpanzees. The Americans sent only two chimpanzees into space. Ham, the first one I mentioned as the ballistic flight in January, 1961, and Enos, the one we just spoken about. But they sent lots of monkeys 
into space, lots of them. And I think the last one went in 1985 on the space shuttle. Wow. As late as that. But more than that, it went, it was actually, it goes on because the Soviets had a program called Bion or Bion, which was basically biological satellites. It was a satellite with a menagerie of animals in it. And there were several of them, Bion 1, Bion 2, Bion 3, it went on and on. And the Americans actually cooperated with the Soviets. It's extraordinary. And then subsequently with the Russians, after the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991, they cooperated and supplied animals. And there was a flight of a beyond, it was called Beyond 11 in 1996, December 1996. And there was going to be two monkeys, two Russian trained monkeys that were going on this, on this flight, which had American cooperation. The protests against this flight in the United States became huge. There were protesters that got inside NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. and chained themselves inside. They couldn't be removed. There was the, the group... The, the, the PETA group, you know, the people for the ethical treatment of animals got very, very involved with this as well. And they managed to cut the funding from Congress for this flight because of these two monkeys that were going to go up, these two rhesus monkeys that were going to go up. But guess what? Thanks to the efforts of John Glenn, Congress restored the funding <laughs> and the flight went ahead with NASA crossing its fingers and hoping that nothing was going to happen to these two monkeys in space. And the Beyond went up in December 1996. It was up for 14 days there. And then on its return, one of those two monkeys died. Multic. He died in a biopsy that was happening just after he landed. And he died essentially on a procedure on the operating table. And at that point, the protests really picked up. And NASA was forced to stop any cooperation on these kinds of primate animal flights. It was the last one that took place. The last one within the US and within the what was then Russia was that flight. But it is incredible that it was the efforts of people like John Glenn that managed to get it overturned so that the flight went ahead in the first place. But we are talking you know, 30, 40 years, even nearly 50 years yeah. after the first monkey flights took place before they were finally stopped. Wow. I honestly had no idea about any of this. This is fascinating. I know. It's blowing my mind. Anyway, we've had a question from one of our Patreon subscribers. Jen Jones has asked, are animals in space portrayed as cute, i.e. a chimp in a little spacesuit, to distract from the fact it's actually experimenting on them? No, they've got to be, I mean, are they cute or are they not? I don't think they are cute in their spacesuits, to be honest. I actually think it's pretty depressing. I mean, I've got photographs of these monkeys. I mean, they're horrific. I have one in my book, actually, and I describe this a little bit in my book. I mean, it's tough stuff. I mean, there's a the Russians didn't just send up dogs, they sent up a rabbit in 1959. And that the spacesuit for that looks kind of, it's just weird. And it's clearly extremely uncomfortable. There's nothing cute about it, in my opinion. I mean, the French, amazingly, because the French are the French are the French are the French are the French, <laughs> sent up a cat, <laughs> the only cat that went into space. In 1963, it was a cat called Felicet. 
And she was fired off from um, the Sahara Desert in October 1963. She reached nearly 100 miles in space. She was weightless for about 13 minutes in space. She came down. She's one of 14 cats that were trained. I mean, why the French use cats? I don't know what they did because they were different. <laughs> 14 of them were trained. Felicette came down. She survived. And then she was euthanized. Oh. As were all the other cats. I think one of them flew a week later and died when the rocket exploded, but all of them were just euthanized. And only yeah. in 2020 in France has a memorial been erected to that cat, to Felicette and the other cats that were actually trained with her. She's the only known cat to have flown in space. Is that cute? I don't think that's cute. Mm. I mean, it's just to me, it's not, you know. I have a cat that looks like Felicet. Oh, you know what Felicet looks like. Yeah, she little tuxedo cat, really cute. And her backup looked like my other cat, Smokey, who's a black cat. Thank God she's not going to space. That's the thing I can only yeah, they're, say. They're staying home with mama, okay? <laughs> you know, some of these animals did fight back. I mean, Enos, we've talked about chucking his feces in the face of a visiting senator, but the reality is that others did too. You know, I mean, there's a wonderful story of a one of the dogs. I mean, the Soviets, we talked about Laika, the Soviets put 44 dogs on rockets, at least. We don't know exactly, because some of the dogs have the same names, and some change their names. It's all still slightly shrouded in mystery, but the figure is around about 44 dogs, and over a longish period of time, of which about 18 were killed. One dog went up five times. Can you believe it? Five times went up on a rocket. And one dog famously, and this again is in Beyond in my book, one dog famously actually ran away at the last moment, just before going in, somehow managed to get away and ran away. <laughs> but they had the rocket up there waiting to go. It was all kind of full of fuel and it was ready to go. So they had to find a dog. So they went to the canteen. This is in Baikonur. They grabbed a dog that was there at the canteen. They put the dog into one of these little spacesuits and they put that dog in the nose cone of the rocket and they fired it. What happened to the dog that ran away? I don't know, but <laughs> that dog managed to get away. Yeah. Wow. So nowadays, uh, obviously they haven't done animal testing in flight for a while, thankfully. But nowadays during test demo flights, either instrumented mannequins are used or actual people are flown. Um, any ideas concerning the future of, of flight, human flight test dummies and how they'll be better equipped to maybe give us an idea of how actual people will respond to space flight? Well, 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 Emily, actually, you know, the International Space Station has lots of animals on board. Oh, yeah. Well, tardigrades. Well, not just tardigrades. It's got mice and spiders and honeybees and all kinds of animals are on board. Yeah. Just not, so, I mean, you know, yeah, not dogs no, or cats. They are, they're animals and they are there. They had a wonderful spiders that went up called, I think they're called Gladys and Esmeralda that went up in 2011. And the purpose was to see how well or badly they were able to create their webs. And it was a massive sort of project. And they did actually very, very well. The trouble is that when they came back to Earth, it was discovered that Gladys was not actually female, was male. <laughs> and so her name was then changed. This is a very kind of gender question. Was then changed to Gladstone. And so came back. Esmeralda, I have to say, did not survive. Um, and actually in the very latest, one of the most recent um, uh, Crew, Drag uh, Crew Dragon um, flights to the International Space Station had some squid on board. 
there's fish that go up regularly to space. I mean, there's, there's a proper menagerie on board the International Space Station. Now, it may not touch our heartstrings or maybe your heartstrings, I don't know, with cats and, <laughs> you know, dogs and, and chimpanzees and monkeys and so forth, but they are there and they are still being observed and watched and noted for the effects that they have. And of course, the wonderful tardigrades. I love the tardigrades. Yeah. Shall I explain what a tardigrade is? Please do. It is, I mean, tardigrades are the most extraordinary creatures on the planet. They're absolutely tiny. They're sometimes called water bears as well. They're absolutely tiny. They're about a half a millimeter in length. And they have eight little suckers on them. And they've got very, very cute little faces. And they are the hardiest animals on our planet. They can survive pretty well anything and everything. And actually, quite famously, in 2007, I think it was, the European Space Agency sent up a photon rocket where they put some of these tardigrades on the outside of the rocket. In other words, they're exposed completely to space without any protection whatsoever. And 68% of them survived after 10 days. Wow. In space. In 2019, there was an Israeli probe, privately funded, that went to the moon. I don't even remember this. And it crashed on the moon. And on board were some tardigrades. And it is perfectly possible that a bit like Wallace and Gromit going to the moon, you know, it is possible that there are actual living organisms, tardigrades on the surface of the moon that have somehow survived (laughs) because they can survive in space. Maybe they'll survive on the moon as well, which is exactly the same environment. And they're still there. Who knows? So, you know, tardigrades, I'm, I'm all for tardigrades. I think they're fantastic. Yeah, we've got a lot to learn from, from those little guys. <laughs> That's for sure. That is for sure. Now, one thing that fascinated me in my research was that ham uh, is buried in New Mexico. And I know that yep. Miss Baker, who was the first American monkey to reach base, uh, is at Huntsville. But as far as I could see, there's no permanent burial site for Enos, or no one knows where the remains are. Uh, no, nothing. No, no, just disappeared. It's crazy. Nobody knows what happened. I mean, he died about a year later after his flight. Um, he got sick and he died. I think it was just almost exactly a year later that he yeah. died, actually, in 1962. I mean, he was he was definitely, um, who knows? He was disposed of. He just disappeared. Ham ended up in kind of two places. Um, his skeleton ended up in Maryland. Um, and it actually ended up, I have a note of it here, actually. He ended up at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Maryland. But the rest of him was actually buried into the International Space Hall of Fame in, in New Mexico. Um, what was interesting about that was that Alan Shepard was invited, this was in 1983, was invited to attend the funeral. There was a very distinguished letter that was written to him saying, you know, this was the, this was the chimpanzee that paved the way. But Shepard didn't like the chimpanzees. He didn't like the fact that he, as a top test pilot that did these incredible things with aeroplanes, was basically doing exactly what the chimpanzee was doing. And he didn't like that. If there's a famous case where somebody, when he was training on the simulator, what they call the procedures trainer, actually made a joke about chimp- him and a chimpanzee. 
And Shepard famously picked up an ashtray and flung it at the man's head. You know, he made jokes about chimp barbecues, his word. So when he was invited to come and be there, when the rest, apart from the skeleton of Ham, was buried in this place, and there's a plaque there as well, he declined and said, I've got too many other things to do, which I don't think is such a great thing, to be honest. The really sad thing is what happened to the living ones. Because what actually happened was, was that the, the chimpanzee colony at Holloman ended up being run by a number of different foundations. And the conditions were horrific. I mean, they ended up in steel cages, in places without any light. They were leased out for medical experiments. As I said, I mean, none of them went up to space again. Um, they were used for HIV experiments in the 1980s. Um, they were there were probably around 500 of them, actually. Um, and it was really, really appalling what happened. There was I have a quotation here, which I just think is just unbelievably moving and horrific. The Air Force sold them off um, eventually. And I have a quotation here from somebody called Colonel Jack Blackhurst, who actually said, you know, the chimpanzees, right, wrong or otherwise, he said, are basically personal possessions. They're just like a piece of equipment. And they were, he said, surplus to requirements. Wow. And so they were sold off. Some of them ended up in supposedly a better place in Florida, whatever that means. As for the monkeys... I mean, there is an incredible story about that. They got older and older and older. They were still a colony of monkeys. And actually, they ended up, this is just awful, they ended up at NASA's Ames Research Center in California. And very recently, in 2019, there were leaked documents um, that showed that all 27 had been euthanized. That was in 2019. They were old. Some of them had Parkinson's at this point, and they were just euthanized. Surplus to requirements. That's what happened. That's where this grand story goes, you know? And I think it's pitiful. You know, you think about the memorials to Yuri Gagarin, you think about the memorials and the, all the noise about Neil Armstrong and about John Glenn and about Alan Shepard, all of which is deserved, don't get me wrong, all of which, these are heroes one and all, but there are these other heroes too, none of them are volunteers. All of them went through horrific situations, whether it be in space or sometimes even worse, often even worse on the ground here on terra firma. They went through these awful experiences. And you know, as you say, Enos, nobody knows what happened to his remains. You know, another one, his skeleton is one place, the rest of him is somewhere else, or they're stuffed in some museum, you know, mm. and the living ones end up being just used for experiments or euthanized. I think that is a shameful reflection on us as human beings. I genuinely do. And my book has... It's a little creed occur in that section of the book. I mean, it's not, I, my book isn't about the animals. There is a section where we talk about Ham, I talk about Ham, where I do feel um, a sense of anger and compassion, actually, for these extraordinary animals that paved the way mm. for this incredible adventure of human flight that we're still engaged in. So this is uh, the last question, and it's kind of a, it's, uh, kind of a softball question. 
Did do you have a favorite space? Oh, that's a great, great question. I mean, I have to say, I think probably it's Enos actually, and I'm not just saying that because we're coming up to the 60th anniversary, but because he's the chimpanzee that fights back, you know, yeah. and he's clever, you know, and in fact, I think what that means is it undermines the whole argument, doesn't it? That these are, in a sense, not sentient, particularly certainly not conscious in any kind of way that human beings are animals that can be used and are expendable. This is a thinking, sentient, conscious creature holding his hand out for the 50th pellet. And he can also shove his shit in the face of a senator where, frankly, not only do it belong, but I'm sure that many, many other people would have actually <laughs> given two cheers just exactly for that action. So, you know, Enos, Enos is the guy for me, I think, with a backup on on hand. That's beautiful. I love it. All right. Amazing. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, another one of those conversations I don't want to end, but we, we kind of have to. I've learned so much here, so thank you once again for, for, for joining us and, and teaching us and our listeners a thing or two. I, I mean, this is, you're, you're right, the depth within this subject is huge, isn't it? And, it's, and we've sort of touched it in lots of different places, but I hope that people listening will get a sense of the kind of richness and diversity and flavor of what's actually out there. You know, it's a parallel or it's like an alternative universe. There's the human story that we know about, but there's this other story that doesn't get talked about. So there's something kind of fresh and different and maybe original about this, but terribly important because one kind of space program would never have happened without this other. Absolutely. 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 Right. Well, thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll we'll leave you in peace now. But thank you once again for joining us. We hope to have you on again. I'm sure we'll find a reason to get you on. This has been wonderful. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, she's restoring the build. Roger, hang on. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. I think that's the most wow I've ever had during an interview. Yeah. I didn't know much of that stuff. Like, I, you know, I could, I'm like, yeah, I'm an expert on spaceflight. And I'm like, I didn't know a quarter of that stuff at all. Like, I, I didn't know that 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 started so early. And wow. <laughs> How yeah. devastating it really was. He never disappoints, does he? No. Stephen Walker. Yeah. I'm kind of speechless, honestly, after it because I feel like throughout my whole life that it's been always kind of portrayed as, yeah, we sent cute, cuddly animals to space. And it's like, wait, no, yeah. <laughs> well, that's really not what happened. Absolutely. No, I, I felt the same. Like uh, the, the, the little memorial for uh, Miss Baker at Huntsville. I'm always like, ah, oh. but actually... It should be more than that, shouldn't it? Be like, oh, the poor thing. Like, actually, what a life that led. And uh, in Dayton, they've got uh, Ham's, the flight jacket that Ham wore for a press shot with Kennedy. And you're like, oh, I thought it was the most adorable thing ever. But actually, poor Ham didn't have much of a life, really. Exactly, yeah. It, I'm kind of looking at it through new eyes now. Yeah, same, you know? same. He's absolutely opened that up. <laughs> we're being joined by Emily's cats appropriately right now. It's Bandit. Yeah. <laughs> Who actually looks like Felicet, the the cat that the French sent to space. And yeah, that that's another story that I'd heard about it years ago. And I was like, oh, how cute. Yeah, They yeah, sent yeah. a little kitty to space. And then later I was like, they did what to the cat? Like, really? Come on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, 
I was thinking that they let the cat go and the cat just got to eat all the baguettes and cheese it wanted, you know, and nope. <laughs> yeah. That's not what happened. So, and, but she just got a memorial as a, I think I have a, fen- a friend of mine gave me a, a pin from the kicks. I think it was a Kickstarter they did to put up nice. a memorial. And a friend of mine gave me a, a like a little lapel pin and it was a little tuxedo cat in a space helmet because not a happy story. No, not at all. And as always, if you're a patron, you can watch the full unedited video of that uh, over on our Patreon page. And it's well worth it because there's a, there's a story in there I've got to cut out of the podcast, which you don't want to miss. Uh, <laughs> I unfortunately have to cut it out. So you're, you're definitely going to want to watch that if you're, you're a Patreon. I do want to add something. Uh, his book, Beyond, uh, was also uh, voted one of the best books of 2021 by the Financial Times. And the Daily Telegraph, which is yeah. really awesome. That's amazing, so the, isn't it? That is amazing. And uh, yeah, just go and buy it. it. It's an incredible book. I really loved it. And it, he's just full of stories. I love it. I love Same. it. Can't get enough. And there'll be a link in the show notes. Houston, we have an announcement. Go ahead. We are pleased to announce the birth of our first moth. And so on to this week's news. At the point of recording on Tuesday 23rd of November, we've had four launches uh, since our last recording. One in New Zealand by Rocket Lab, two in China by the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC, and one by Astra in Alaska. That sounds great, doesn't it? One by Astra in Alaska, uh, which marks their first successful orbital flight of their Rocket 3, which carried a dummy payload for a test flight for the US military. Now, this is just the fourth attempt of flight for Astra, and that's mighty impressive of an achievement for a company which was only founded in 2016. Five years from founding to orbit, that really is quite something. Anyway, the full detail of payloads of all of this week's launches, as well as videos, can be found by checking out the show notes or on our website. If you're listening to this the week it comes out, then just head straight to spaceandthingspodcast.com. But if you're listening afterwards, you can find them in the archive on the website or follow the link in the description of this podcast on your podcast platform. There are plenty of launches coming up too, and they may have even happened before this podcast airs with three launches scheduled for Wednesday, uh, November 24th, including the DART mission, which is really quite something. Uh, NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, is going to attempt to do exactly that. Redirect an asteroid by slamming itself into it. The spacecraft is aiming to hit an asteroid called Dimorphos in late September or early October of 2022. Dimorphos is traveling alongside a much larger asteroid called Didymos. And while neither of these asteroids are currently headed for Earth, it is hoped that if this works, we could have a good way of stopping potential future collisions because as we know from history and from many films, uh, (laughs) an asteroid hitting Earth could be an elimination event. Whether permitting, this will be launched by a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, and if it is launched by this time the podcast comes out, the video will also be in the show notes. Interestingly, the European Space Agency is setting up a craft in October 2024 to go visit the asteroid and inspect the outcome of the impact of DART. The Hera spacecraft was originally due to launch to watch the collision firsthand, but funding delays meant it wasn't going to be ready in time. 
By the time it launches, we will of course know whether DART achieved its aim of changing the trajectory of the asteroid, but being able to explore the results of the explosion is still pretty cool. It's also hoping to peek inside either Didymos or Dimorphos, which would be a first. Yeah, this is this is DART mission is very cool. And uh, we're going to find out whether uh, Deep Impact or Armageddon will never actually happen. <laughs> Knowing that Bruce Willis won't have to save us is probably a good thing. Yeah, maybe he's busy that week or he's got <laughs> getting a massage. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the lifestyle of a movie star. Anyway, there is another exciting launch happening soon too. If all goes to plan on December the 4th, NASA will launch the Laser Communication Relay Demonstration spacecraft on board an Atlas V rocket. Now, this is a mission that has also been delayed for a variety of reasons, but was supposed to take place in 2019. And its aim is to test a laser in space with the ambition of speeding up communications. Uh, The spacecraft will reach an orbit of 22,236 miles, not as far as the moon, but far enough to get some good data. It's expected that this could help send 10 to 100 times more data back to Earth than by using radio frequencies and also should help to avoid the overcrowding problems which beset the radio frequency spectrum. With the Artemis program beginning to get started, (laughs) and with the Gateway Space Station in planning and many other moon and Mars missions planned, this could be a big game changer. And it's also got me thinking about whether this might change the way we communicate on Earth. Who knows? Anyway, this mission is super cool and I didn't know anything about it before this week, so very happy about that. That's really neat. Yeah, that's. I'm glad they're exploring that. That's pretty cool. In other news, NASA has announced the final crew member who will be traveling to the International Space Station as part of the Crew 4 mission in April. Rookie astronaut Jessica Watkins will be joining fellow NASA astronauts Jell Lindgren and Robert Hines and ESA astronaut Samantha Christopher Reddy on a six-month visit to the station, traveling on board a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule launched by a Falcon 9 rocket. Watkins is a geologist who was selected as an astronaut in 2017 and brings a wealth of different experiences to the table. She was a science planner for the Curiosity Mars rover, has analyzed near-Earth asteroids, has been an analog astronaut, and lived and worked underwater as part of the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. She is also a former international rugby player. Yes. Rugby, it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. I've never played it, but it's fun to watch. My favorite sport. Love it. She is also going to become the first black woman to live on the International Space Station. Watkins is also part of the Artemis astronauts, so she could be one of the first people to go back to the moon since Apollo. We'll post a video about her in the show notes. Yeah, uh, I think she might be the first, although now I've said that, it's probably because I've been reading up all about her this week, but... In reality, every time I read up about any of these astronauts, I think, oh, yeah, there might be the first back on the moon. All of them have got the most ridiculously amazing CVs. So, so amazing. Anyway, Jessica's great. They've all done, like, crazy stuff. Like, Absolutely. I mean, just incredible stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And finally, while we're talking about announcements, Blue Origin have revealed who will be on their next flight on December 9th. This time, the new Shepard spacecraft will take a crew of six on a suborbital flight, including Alan Shepard's daughter, Laura Shepard Churchley, who is now 74. Yes, that is really cool. And uh, one of our former guests is also going up as well. Yep, Dylan Taylor. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. He's posted a really good blog post today about 
why, how, all this kind of stuff. And it looks like it's going to be part of a series. Uh, so I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, but yeah, so exciting. I, I messaged you first thing. This, as soon as I saw it, I got, got the notification. And I was like, just sent the, the screenshot. Emily! It's so, <laughs> was like, so When I read that, it was so weird because I'm like, this is the first time, like, I think in my life that I've ever, that I've ever actually met two astronauts before they went to space. Yeah, I met Dylan on Zoom, but I've I Laura I've met in person. So I'm thinking about that and I'm like, this is weird because I know both of these people, you know, and I'm like, that's very weird. It's like it's like closing in now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was very excited to see both of their names on there. But yep, uh, I hope that flight goes well. And and once again, I, you know, Blue Origin, we've, we've spoke about the negatives about them. When they send someone like Laura, Laura Shepard Churchley up and there's that connection with the past that we love and it's in a rocket called New Shepard, it's, you know, I think that's... It's one of those things that, that their PR on that side of things gets me going. And that's, that's, you know, I've got to be careful not to get suckered in too much and let them off for the other stuff. But, uh, but I like this. This story's a good story. Yeah. I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. I, I love it. If you got a minute, I think we owe you a report on strawberries and pork loin. So we normally do this at the front, but I really wanted to get into that interview today. Uh, but Emily. You've been busy writing again or publishing articles again. Uh, there are two new ones on Medium I saw and read. Uh, they're a little bit longer than your usual, which makes me think that there might be a book coming at some point, maybe. I hope so. I hope so. One about Gus Grissom, which is one of my favorite subjects always. And the other one is about something, um, I think it's uh, a, a, a mutiny. <laughs> yeah, about the Skylab mutiny. Yeah. Um, those are two pieces I read a while ago and I'd never published them. I've been holding on to them and finally I was like, just put them out there and see if anybody reads them. And uh, I, I got a lot of great feedback and a lot of people read them. So the experiment worked. And, and I, I learned a lot in both of them. Sub- subjects I thought I knew about, I still was learning. So, so great job there. Thank you. Now, Emily, I, before we talk about your next one, I just want to want to mention in last week's episode, you dropped the S-bomb. Yes, I did. I'm sorry. And I forgot to put a beep on it. Oh, You no. said Skylab, and I didn't beep it. Oh, okay. For a second, I thought you meant the other S word. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I probably did no. say that, you know. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it, you said Skylab, and I didn't beep it. So I think because I missed one for the first time since I started doing it, I think that's the end. I think that's the end of oh, Quindartones underneath Sky. I, th- I think you're off the hook now. Todd Andy. is going to be upset. Hook. Todd is yeah. going to be upset. Sorry, Todd. Yeah. All right, so that's it. That's it. Em- Emily can say Skylab to her heart's content yes. with no Quindartones underneath Skylab, now. Skylab, 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 Skylab. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, We'll we'll have to find another thing. Probably something I say that uh, will be my turn next. uh... Anytime Dave has to make tea or something. Yeah. (laughs) Talking of which, thank you very much. Uh, But actually, uh, you have another blog out as well. And this one was really interesting as well. This is on your Celestius blog. And uh, this one was about Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. It was about um, Celestius's like history with Star Trek and their their sort of relationship with Star Trek, not just the the people who've been on the show and who made the show, like Gene Roddenberry, but it's also about their relationship with people who are fans of Star Trek. And it really goes into that. And that was really cool. I got to interview Celestius' uh, CEO, Charles Chafer, who's a, who's a wonderful guy. He's really cool. 
And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed writing it. I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I'm not a huge Trekkie. I, I like Star Trek, but I'm not as into it as probably a lot of people are. Like, I know people who could tell you like every, you know, every line on the show and, every, yeah. you know, they, they know like all of them. And I am not at that level, but I, I do enjoy it. And I, I think Star Trek is um, sort of a model, you know, for what space I like the model that Gene put out there is that, you know, it involved everybody, you know? Yeah. So I, I really, I like that idea of, you know, space flight. I really like it. So it was fun to write. I learned, I learned an awful lot because there was stuff that I had no idea about. Yeah. It's a good article. So again, Links in the show notes, as always. But that's it for this week. 65 episodes completed without missing a week. So thank you for your support and for listening. Please continue to hit that share button if you have friends you think may like what we do. And I think this episode is amazing episode with that interview with Stephen. Yes. He's always worth sharing. So also, if you're willing and able, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things, or check out our merchandise on our website. Yeah, and with so many people to thank, it's worth uh, wishing you all a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, if you are uh, you're stateside, uh, make sure to eat all the turkey today. Uh, <laughs> and get some of the cranberry sauce and the turkey. Hope it's homemade. Uh, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.